Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody out there today? Good morning, everyone. Thank you. Fantastic. Happy Independence Day to each of you. I don't, I don't ever recall uh, Independence Day falling on a Sunday in this way, but it is good to be out together with you on this holiday. You can turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 9. That's certainly uh, different. We haven't said that. We've said Acts 8 for the last four or five weeks, so it's good for us to have transitioned into uh, the next chapter. So go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles. Scrolling there if you're using your phone or something of that nature. Our goal today is we're going to have a, a time in the Word, a study of a Word. It's maybe a, a little bit of a shorter study than typical. Then we're going to have a baptism. We have three individuals that are going to be baptized uh, this morning, and so we're excited about that opportunity. I'll take a little more time as we draw nearer to that to explain sort of the process and the reason and the purpose uh, beyond what we're doing. Uh, and then we'll uh, celebrate that in these individuals' lives. So we look forward to that. Uh, and then, kind of unrelated to the baptism, more so with Independence Day, we have hot dogs, chips, juices, or whatever. Just hang out a bit. Get yourself a hot dog. Uh, it'll be fun. Uh, does anyone not like hot dogs? Any of you weirdos? Uh, <laughs> okay. I love a nice I don't need to eat a hot dog every day, but ah, a good hot dog every now and again. Um, so, anyway. Let, let's preach on the goodness of hot dogs together. Let's uh, spend our time wasted doing that. Father, we thank you for uh, our nation. We thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. Lord, we pray that you would continue, Lord, in the midst of that, allow the gospel to go forth uh, in power. Lord, so that uh, those we care about, those we love, love, those that we interact with, our neighbors and family members, would truly be able to experience the freedom of being set free from sin. Lord, give us a boldness to declare what we know and have come to discover to be true. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that no one is outside of the reach of the grace and the mercy of God. I pray that you would increase our faith, even in our study of the word today, that you would increase our faith to go boldly forth and to proclaim it. Lord, as Brother Kyle shared earlier, we do pray for our brothers and sisters that are down in Ocean City, having had the opportunity last night and the opportunity each night this week to tell others. And Lord, we do know that many will come and it'll be a joke and they'll, they'll be fooling around as they go and talk to the preacher people. And yet we know that your word does not come back void. And so, Father, we pray that even in the conversations, even as those folks leave there and they go about pondering the things they've heard, Lord, that you would bring about a conversion in their hearts. Father, we pray for any that are with us today that don't yet know Christ. Father, we ask that you would bring about a conversion in their hearts. We thank you. And thank you for your word. Bless it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we are in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 provides, it begins at least, it provides for us the account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I've been uh, eagerly anticipating this particular chapter because it is a most remarkable account that is found in our Bibles, the conversion of the man that might have been called the, the enemy of the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. 
And the way in which God intervened, got a hold of this particular man's heart, is what we're going to be looking at today. Now, we've, we've been introduced to this rabbi, this rabbi Saul. We've seen him on two different occasions already uh, in the book of Acts. The first occasion, maybe you remember, uh, was back in chapter 7 and the end of chapter 7, where he was participating in the trial of that disciple Stephen. You remember back in Jerusalem, Stephen went to the temple area there and he was beginning to explain some of the things that uh, the Lord was doing uh, in the, that early church. And he began to preach the gospel, essentially. And as you recall, they, they took Stephen, they dragged him out of the temple, they stoned him, they killed him. He became the first martyr of the Christian church. And we have one little verse there that simply says this. It's chapter 8, verse 1. It probably belongs more properly to chapter 7. And it just simply says these words, and Saul approved of his execution. That word approved, uh, authorized. Saul authorized his execution. We will learn Saul was, is and was a member of the Sanhedrin who gave authority to those that would take the life of this man for defiling the temple in the way he did with his preaching. That was the first time we saw the rabbi Saul. The second instance in which we saw him is just a few verses later. You can look in your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 3. And there we see it says that Rabbi Saul was making havoc of the church. Some versions say ravaging the church. That he was going house after house, knocking down doors, going inside, dragging men and women out that were preaching the gospel or even talking about the gospel. And he was committing those individuals to prison. I'll remind you that word ravaging, translated making havoc in some versions, is used elsewhere in our Bibles to describe a wild beast tearing apart its prey. By design, Luke is trying to communicate that this rabbi was violently opposing the church of Jesus Christ, violently trying to put an end to what he saw to be the lie of Christianity. First, there in Jerusalem, and as we're going to see, anywhere that the gospel spread, he would go and put an end to this faith. Now, Saul of Tarsus, I've talked to you about this previously when we briefly introduced him before, was considered one of the most promising young men in first century Jerusalem. We will come to discover he was a brilliant man. We know that he was well-educated, both in the Greek community as well as in the Jewish community. He's clearly a very zealous individual. He was everything that the older rabbis of first century Jerusalem would have looked to and said, finally, we have someone whom we could pass this on to, someone who will take up the charge after we're off of the scene. He was an up-and-coming protege, and he was the, the one that their hope was placed in. We know historically that uh, young Saul, when he was probably 13, 14, maybe 12 years of age, he was sent from his community outside of Israel, the town or the city of Tarsus, and he was sent to Jerusalem into like a special school so that he might be raised at the feet, taught at the feet of the most respected theologian of the day, a fellow by the name of Gamaliel. That's not just something anybody can get into if they want to. And so he was a privileged individual who, because he had shown himself as brilliant as he was, even at a young age, was admitted into this school of sorts. And so he was trained there by the leading rabbi of Jerusalem of that day. 
being from Tarsus as he was, we know that he was a young man that was extensively familiar, not only with the small Jewish community that lived there in Tarsus, but also with the language and the culture and the thinking of the Greek community that primarily made up that particular city. And so you put all of these pieces together and Saul was seen by his contemporaries as perfectly suited to defend and even advance the cause of the Jewish religion amidst the increasingly hostile culture in which it found itself. Perhaps this is the reason he was so quickly elevated, even as a relative young man, 30, to become a member of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful ruling body of the Jewish people in that day. And so twice Luke, who is again the author of the book of Acts, twice he's mentioned to us this Saul of Tarsus. But in chapter 8, he diverts his attention, he mentions Saul twice, diverts his attention away from Saul to continue to discuss the expansion of the church outside of Jerusalem. That's the passages that we looked at with Philip in Samaria and Philip down on the road that leads to um, Gaza and those other instances there. As we come, back, come now to chapter 9, the story goes back now to this persecuting rabbi. So follow along, I'm going to read. Starting in verse, nine, chapter, or verse 1, chapter 9, it says this, Now, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And so again, the man who rightfully might have been called the enemy of the church is converted. And he's converted in the most remarkable of ways. It's been said of this account of Scripture that this is the most famous conversion story in history. Countless artists have attempted to depict this most magnificent of transformations, including Michelangelo in his piece, which he just simply called the conversion of Saul, which you can go to see in the Vatican if you're inclined. Every, or you can Google it, uh, which is what I did. Every conversion is a miracle. But there's something about the enemy of Christ coming to the faith that he once so vigorously sought to destroy. And even more remarkable still, as we read the rest of this book, is to see the way in which God used this man going forward, perhaps more than any other individual in the history of the church. Now, I suspect many of us here this morning that we are aware, but for the sake of those that may not be, this Rabbi Saul is the man who would go on to become known as the Apostle 
Paul, the great missionary of the early church and the author of just about half of our New Testament. So let's look in, let's dig in and look at this man. Notice how Luke begins chapter 9. In the ESV, he begins with the words, but Saul. I think in this instance that the NIV translation captures Luke's intention a little bit better, which translates it not but Saul, but rather meanwhile Saul. Because the idea is that while these things were happening over here through Philip, first in Samaria, then down near Gaza, over here on this side, meanwhile Saul was doing what he was doing. He says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, notice that little word there that Luke inserts, the word still. The idea that he's communicating is the very thing that Saul had started to do, back in chapter 8, verse 3, he's continuing to do, recorded for us in chapter 9. So back in 8.3, he was ravaging the church, going house after house, dragging men and women out and throwing them into prison. That intense persecution, as the verse before it called it, began in Jerusalem. Here now in chapter 9, it's going to extend or expand 120 miles north to the city of Damascus, where word has come to Saul that there is a gathering or a group of believers in Jesus Christ that has formed. And so verse 2 says that this Saul asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now why would a small group of people, or even if it was a large group of people, But why would a small group of people 120 miles away, that was a six-day journey by foot in that day, why what they did or what they believed impacted Saul so greatly is never told to us. But the reality is that it did, as is clearly demonstrated. So there they are 120 miles away in some distant city, not even a city that was part of Israel, and Saul is determined, I must go there. And I must arrest them. Saul had made it his personal mission to destroy what he saw to be the pernicious sect of the Christian faith. And so then in order to have the necessary authorization to do what he was planning to do, Saul goes to the high priest, as it says in our passage. He secures from him letters authorizing him to go into the synagogues to drag out any of those Jews that had embraced the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus' disciples. And again, you have to ask yourself, why? What is making you so angry to do the things that you are doing in some distant city, wherever it may be? Well, we could guess at Saul's motivation. It's possible that Saul saw the Christian faith as a threat to the Jewish faith. And because he was so passionate for the Jewish faith and he had committed his life to the Jewish faith and it had actually become his vocation, it's possible that that was Saul's motivation. That Saul sincerely saw the Christian faith as a fraudulent faith set out to deceive. 
being based as it was on the resurrection of Jesus and believing, as Saul did, that no such resurrection actually occurred, it could be that Saul was angered by the Christian faith because he saw it to be a willful deception on the part of a group of people. And that, this, that bothered him and motivated him to do what it was that he was doing. It seems that we have provided for us somewhat of a clue to what motivated Saul's hatred in Jesus' statement that we just read a few moments ago, that when Jesus said to Saul, following the bright shining light that knocked down Saul, according to Paul's retelling of this event in Acts chapter 26, Jesus said to Paul at that time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And that might be a hint to us, a clue to us, as to what was prompting Saul to travel a seven-day journey, six-day journey, to some distant city. A goad was a long stick with one or more sharp points on the end. And it was used by farmers to get an ox or a cow or whatever it might be to go the way you wanted them to go when they were plowing. And so if they began to drift off, you would just sort of poke them with the stick and on the side, the opposite side of where you want them to go, and you'd motivate them to go where they needed to go. Essentially, Saul is the ox, and Jesus would be the farmer. Saul was the stubborn ox that was being goaded in the right direction, but was continuing to resist despite the pain of doing so. That instead of submitting to Jesus, Saul continued to kick against the goad. And each time he did so, he only increased the pain. Now, of course, Saul was not kicking against a literal goad, but rather a guilty conscience. A conscience that was prompting him in a different direction that he was refusing to go down. Saul was being driven toward the Christian faith, but he was kicking and screaming the entire way. And he was refusing to embrace the faith. Saul's response was to even more violently oppose that which he was increasingly beginning to recognize as true. Again, I turn your attention back to 8.3. In 8.3 it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house to put an end to this sect. Prior to that, in 8.1, Saul merely approved of or authorized those in opposition to Stephen. Now, in 8.3, he's taking the lead, and he's proceeding with a religious zeal and an unbridled, unexplainable rage. Something had changed in Saul. And the only event we have recorded for us taking place between those two extremes was the death of Stephen. And so I think it's, it's safe to conclude that something about this, the death of Stephen impacted Saul and continued to prick his conscience. I can't help but conclude that it was the way in which Stephen died, who you may remember from our study a few months back, that as he was dying, he said first, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and then secondly, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I suspect that as Saul recollected on that day that he wondered to himself, 
whether he could ever die a death like that. Could he die a death with such peace of mind and heart that Stephen demonstrated in his final moments? And even more, more remarkably, did he have the moral character that would allow for him to ask for the forgiveness of his murderers at the very moment when he was being killed by those murderers? I think that in Stephen saw, saw how far short he fell in his own personal righteousness. And it ate at him. It ate at him from that day onward at his conscience. Saul saw in Stephen a man willing to die for his faith. And not just to endure the process of dying, but to do so not with a sense of dread, as we read in Acts 7, but rather with peace and even anticipation that he would soon be home with his Lord. Saul could not get Stephen out of his heart and his mind. And in an attempt to do so, however, Saul proceeded with unbounded energy by pouring himself into his work and his new mission, which was to destroy the Christian church. Saul would drown out the memory of Stephen by stepping up his attacks on Stephen's fellow believers. And in an attempt to still the incessant nagging that he was experiencing, Saul plunged himself into the most violent action possible, first persecuting Christians in Jerusalem, and then by expanding outward to anywhere rumor came to him that Christians were settling, including Damascus. Verse 3 continues, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's as Saul is making his way to Damascus to persecute the followers of Jesus that he is encountered by Jesus. Luke tells us he approached Damascus as he did. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone all around him. In Acts chapter 22, when Paul is retelling this story, he reveals there that the event occurred about noon, which of course is when the sun shines at its brightest. On another occasion, when Paul was recounting the experience to King Agrippa, he tells how the light from heaven that he saw was brighter than the sun. And so Saul encountered on the road to Damascus a light brighter than the very noonday sun of which he found himself under. There on the road leading into the city, Saul encountered the glory of the Lord. And he knew instantly that it was the Lord, the title that is given in the New Testament to God, as we will see from his question down in verse 5. But first, verse 4, that out of this bright shining light came the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice that the voice doesn't say, why are you persecuting my disciples? But rather, why do you persecute me? Saul knows the one that is speaking to him is God. He calls him Lord. Yet as far, far as Saul knew, he had never persecuted God. In fact, he would have said prior to this that he was seeking to defend the honor of God. Which leads us to the reason for the next question. He says, who are you, Lord? 
he says in so many words, I know that you are Lord, but I've never persecuted the Lord. Or have I? Who are you? Another way we might say it is, he asks, what's your name? And imagine his shock when in verse 5 he hears, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As his heavenly light overwhelmed him, Saul was immediately confronted with the true nature of his crime. He had been persecuting God, not man. He thought he was serving God in viciously attacking Christians. But in a moment, in an instant, he discovered that he was actually fighting against the Lord above. How wrong he had been. The one that he thought was dead was clearly not dead because here he was speaking to him. The one that he thought had died a disgraceful death and would have thus been accursed by God was now speaking to him in the glory of God. The one who people had put their faith in that he was pouring himself out in an attempt to destroy, he would go on spending the rest of his life seeking to advance. Saul had been so wrong, but through the grace and the mercy of God, his error was corrected in an instant. The enemy of the church of Christ was saved, and his life would never be the same. In that moment, the long battle, remember the goading that he was going through? The long battle was over, and Saul surrendered his life to Christ. Previously, we read, it said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. There's a very important thing we learn there about the heart of Jesus that I don't want us to miss. The verse doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's getting pretty annoying and I'm getting tired of it. That's not what the verse says. It doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? My people and I can't hold out much longer. Rather, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you. Even in the persecution against him, Jesus demonstrates his concern for the impact that persecution is having on Saul, the one that is doing the persecuting. He says, Saul, it's been so hard for you. And it's painful for me to see how hard it has been for you. What a tender heart Jesus has for the lost. He was the persecuted one, yet his concern was for the effect it was having on Saul. Back in Acts chapter 7, when we were studying the ministry of Stephen and his death as the church's first martyr, at that time the thought occurred to me as to whether Stephen's ministry ever really made any lasting impact on the community to which he ministered. And so he came in, he preached a great sermon, people listened to it, and as quickly as he rose up, he was off the scene and dead. Did he ever really make a lasting impact on others? Well, in light of what we have considered this morning, Stephen's ministry most certainly did impact the community to which he ministered, and beyond, way beyond his immediate community, to touch our lives as well. Saul, or Paul, the apostle, is the direct answer 
to the dying prayer of Stephen, who said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen died praying for those very ones that were killing him, and he died praying that they would be forgiven. God answered Stephen's prayer, and Paul is the evidence that he did. I suspect no one gathered there that day at that trial and execution of Stephen would have thought that his words were impacting this angry rabbi in the way that they eventually did. And so let it encourage each of us this morning. Let it be an encouragement to each of us that are seeking to tell others about the truth of Jesus only to be encountered by vocal and perhaps even violent opposition. Because this story of the conversion of Saul proves that people might seem to be turning a deaf ear to what it is we're saying. Or worse, picking up stones to put us down and shut us up. But the scripture reminds us that the word of God never returns back void. We have no impact or no idea the impact our words, which should ultimately be God's word, may be having on other people. Paul was impacted by Stephen's testimony, even though it might not have appeared to be so. Secondly, be encouraged by the story of the conversion of Saul because you, no doubt, like me, you know people who seem absolutely hardened and entrenched in their opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The conversion of Saul should serve as a reminder to us and as a beacon of hope that no one, no one is too far from the love and the lordship of Jesus. No one is too far that his love and his lordship can't get a hold of their heart as it did here with Saul. The story of the Christian faith is filled with examples of those that once stood vigorously opposed to the gospel, who nevertheless were subdued by an encounter with Jesus. Do you know people who seem absolutely hardened to the gospel? Do you? We all do. In many ways, I think those people are closer to Jesus than the person who says, oh, that's so nice for you. I'm glad that makes you happy. Maybe you work with such people that are hardened toward the gospel. Maybe you go to school with them. I remember a kid in college, and I had a lot of like literature classes with him, and a lot of like English literature has references to the Bible, and so it seemed every class the Bible was being talked about by the professor, and I was real excited about it. And this kid finally, he, he got up and he was angry. Why do we always have to talk about the Bible in this class? Or whatever. Most of the kids in the class didn't really care. Just what do I need to put in my notebook so I can pass the test? And something about the story of the Bible just angered this kid. I don't know what happened with this kid 30-some years after, now that I haven't been in college for that long. But I can't help but wonder if God got a hold of his heart. Because it seems that those that are so opposed to the gospel are opposed to the goading that is going on in their conscience. I know some of you that are here, you're married to such an individual that is opposed to the gospel. Our prayers are with you. Be encouraged by our story this morning. The Lord can and the Lord does break through 
in the lives of men and women and young people like the Rabbi Saul. And so don't lose hope and don't stop praying for those individuals. And I think even more importantly this morning, a helpful reminder for us, don't stop believing in prayer. Because often we pray and we ask God to change a person's life, to save a person. But many times, truth be told, we're not really sure or we don't really think that God can actually do it. We pray for the person, perhaps out of obligation, perhaps out of rote. But deep down, we're thinking something to the effect of, Lord, I know you saved other people, but I don't really think you can save this particular one. The conversion of Saul should encourage each one of us today to keep praying fervently for those that we love, looking for opportunities to communicate to them the truth of God and his word. Because as we will discover in our study of the book of Acts, God turned that great persecutor of the early church into its greatest missionary, at least in the first century. And if God can do that with Saul, God can do it with the people that you and I care so much about today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together, and then we're going to celebrate the ordinance of baptism. Before I pray, what I would like you to do is just take a moment in silence to maybe call to mind some folks that are so far off, it seems, from the Lord that you're tempted to conclude that such and such would never come to the faith. Let's just take a few minutes to provide you an opportunity to think of those folks, and then we'll pray. Father, I have to imagine that uh, it's not hard for many of us to immediately think of some folks. And Father, our heart's desire is to trust you in a greater way, even for their souls. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use our text today to sort of revive our faith, our trust, our ability to hope that you will do what seems to be impossible. And Lord, that you would bring these folks to the place of an encounter with you. Lord, that you would radically transform their lives. Lord, that you would save them and send them forth as missionaries to reach a lost and dying world themselves. Father, we pray for those that we care about that are indifferent. And they sort of pat us on the shoulder or the head. They congratulate us that we found something that's nice for us and it seems to make us happy. Lord, I pray that you would grab a hold of their heart and reveal to them their great need for a savior a stirring work within them. Bring them to the end of themselves. Bring them to the end of this world. And sort of the entertainment and the distractions and all these things, Lord, that take them away from the truth of what really matters. 
the condition of their soul and reveal to them Jesus. Thank you for your word, Lord. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.